Welcome to Dead You Week 2. We're going to get started. So it's always a dilemma, like do I start on time and set the precedent, but then people are going to trickle in, but then if you start later, then guys are like, oh, well, we're not starting right on time, and so then next week, we'll, so I just, anyways, we're starting. So glad you're here. Uh, hey, quick reminder of a couple things I mentioned last week that I want to make sure I keep in front of you, because some of them are immediate signups. If you have been married zero to five years, uh, we are doing a retreat at the end of this month. Uh, for young husbands, and um, we had it last year. We had about 50 guys. It was awesome, and really, really fun, good connecting time, and just want to invite you to come to that. There's the QR code to sign up there. It'll just be Friday night, and then we're done by Saturday night at 8 o'clock, so that way if uh, any of you have um, kiddos, your wife doesn't feel frustrated that you're not there Sunday morning to help with the kids. Second thing, as always, we have a Dad You podcast. Uh, Last week, we uh, dropped the a short little podcast I did on just prayer, like ideas for being a praying dad with your family. So if you want to check that out, and this goes back to, we've almost been doing it a year, I think. About every two weeks, we, we try to put one out. Uh, also, some past dad you talks are on there. And then, if you have a child in first through fifth grade, we are going to go back to uh, camp for our second ever father-son retreat at the Pine Cove Bluffs, about 90 miles from here. And same kind of schedule. Mainly, we're done by Saturday night at 8 o'clock. If you want to head back, but we are going to throw in an alternate uh, or an option if you want to stay one more night to camp out on the camp property, you can uh, to have a little bit more fun. But that's going to be um, on February 23rd through Sunday the 25th, or you can leave Saturday night. We're basically done, but that's the plan for, uh, for that. Well, let me go and pray for us, and we'll get going. Father, we're so grateful for you and your love for us that you've shown us um, what unconditional love looks like, and Lord, we confess that as dads, that we can be conditional. Uh, Lord, that we run out of patience and joy. And uh, Lord, we can um, just walk in our own wisdom. So God, we cry out for wisdom this morning. Thank you so much for these men that are here. I pray that you would continue to remind us of our identity and the gospel and empower us by your grace uh, to love our wives and to lead our family. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Just to get the things going a little bit with some humor this morning. I don't know how you guys feel on Christmas morning, but I have become this dad uh, as my kids got older with the trash and the wrapping paper, um, I literally, before we start opening gifts, get a trash bag and I'm like ready. And then as soon as they open the gift, I'm like, hey, throw me your trash. And I don't know why I became that. Like, it's crazy. It didn't used to bug me. And now I'm just, I've become that. Um, it's been fun watching my sons now become dads with them really getting dad jokes and starting to tell da- dad jokes. I thought this was funny. This is when dads protest. This is the last straw. And then this one was great. Dad has a heart attack. Call me an ambulance. And the son, uh, you're an ambulance. So great, right? Have you guys done that yet? Like, hi, son. I'm, I'll call you hungry when they say I'm hungry. Anyways, just thought it was great. And then if you have multiple kids, this was another great one that I could relate to. It says, having multiple kids is weird. You have one kid you could trust to be home alone for a whole weekend, and you know they eat vegetables, lock the doors, and wash the dishes. Then you have another kid who is not allowed to hold an umbrella. And they're almost the same age. Like, that was my life. Like, my kids were, one, really, I could, like, I could leave, you, you take care of the, the home, fine. And the other one, I'm like, uh, nope, we're, uh, we're not going to give you anything sharp. Okay, last week we talked about a praying father. And my goal, and I want to make sure you understand, in everything we do here, um, my challenge and reminder to you is just to take a thing and begin to implement it. I do not want you to leave ever feeling condemned or like overwhelmed or I've got so much to do. Like just pick a thing and just start one thing. So make sure that you're, you're, you're feeling that. But the new year, like I said, is a great time to begin new habits of prayer 
and intentionality, and um, being a praying father is a big one. So we're going to do a big shift today uh, about kind of a negative example uh, about a passive father. So this last fall, and really from the summer on, we did a great study of King David uh, about his life and his struggles and challenges, and awesome man of God, known as a man after God's own heart, and... um, when you think of pictures of David, you think of him as a, a poet, a shepherd. He beat Goliath. He battled the temptation of taking vengeance back on Saul, um, you know, in the cave. All those wonderful things. The truth is, though, if you were to see a picture painted of his kind of uh, legacy that he left as a father, this is what you would get. And we don't cover this a whole lot, or we kind of skip over it or aren't as familiar. And again, I love David, so this is not throwing him under the bus, but Scripture records things for a reason, and we want to learn from both the positive and the negative examples that we have. And I want to look today at how David was really a passive father, that he was great in some things, but he was not great in some others. And the main three areas that we're going to see this is with his three sons, Amnon, Absalom, and Adonijah. They're the... There, there's one son in the middle there, but these are kind of his first few sons that he had. And this is why he would look like this in failure as, as a father, that he really dropped the ball uh, in a lot of ways. And I love this reminder from William Carey. He said, I'm not afraid of failure. I'm afraid of succeeding at things that don't matter. And so obviously David wrote tons of poetry and, and led Israel, unified all those things. So not discounting any of that. But at the same time, when you look at the legacy that he left, kind of the way that he, he started things off and then his son just kind of took it to a whole new level, um, I want to make sure that it doesn't matter if I'm successful, even here in ministry, if my family at home, uh, my marriage, my kids, um, aren't doing great. And so it's always got to be my uh, attention and intention in this. So let me tell you real quick the story of Amnon, Absalom, and Adonijah so you guys understand what I'm talking about. And then we're going to talk about, so why did it end up that way? If you read in 2 Samuel 13 about Amnon, so David already has uh, more than one wife at this time, which we're going to talk about in a minute. Uh, Amnon had a crush on his half-sister, Tamar. And actually, it says that he burned with lust for her, and he he, he wanted her so badly it made him sick. And he had a friend who really said, hey, here's, here's the plan. Pretend to be sick, ask her to come make bread in your presence where you can watch her. So that's already appealing to the senses there. And uh, she does that, and he basically uh, entices her, says, come on over here. And then he grabs her and just forces himself on her. And then it says, and then he hated her with as much love that he had loved her, and he banished her. So total shame, um, perversion, all those things. And she ended up going to Absalom, who was her full brother. And he said, uh, just come live in my house, where she, she ended up living kind of for us rest of her life. So Absalom, this brother, is pretty upset about this. Um, here's, the, here's the big reveal. In 2 Samuel 13, 21, it says, when David heard of all these things, he was very angry. So we're going to talk about disciplining our kids in a minute. Is it enough just to get angry about what they do? So David's angry, but here's the problem. He doesn't take action, okay? In the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Septuagint, they actually add this on there But he would not punish his son Amnon because he loved him since he was his firstborn. So, should have taken the role there. Here's what scripture says. Under the law, rape was punishable by death. And it was David's role as king to administer justice. And he did nothing about it. But he got angry about it. But no action. So now you've got Amnon, who's done this terrible thing. 
David's own daughter has been raped by his son. And now you've got Absalom furious about this. And Absalom is the next person. He has this plot in his mind. So he hates Amnon and he plots for two years. He acts like things are fine. He plots for two years how he's going to get his revenge. And he ends up killing him, having him killed while Amnon gets drunk at a party. Um, Freaks out the uh, other sons like, are we all going to die? So Absalom then flees to Geshur where his father-in-law was actually king. He stays there for three years. Okay, So I want you to begin to add up the math here. Um, Amnon rapes Tamar. Two years later, Absalom takes revenge, takes revenge. Now you've got three more years. So you've got five years where Absalom has um, been away. Um, David eventually allows him to return, but his punishment is that he can't come into the king's presence for two years. So now you've got seven years since this event happened with bitterness growing inside of Absalom. Now he's murdered someone. And now his father, the king, is saying, like, yeah, you can come to Jerusalem, but you're banished from me. You can't, you can't see me, okay? So then, for the next four years, embittered Absalom launches a four-year campaign to win the hearts of the people, convincing them that he would be a better and just king. And you got to think, in his mind, he's thinking, my dad was not just. Justice was not served. And now he's upset. The Bible says he's a really handsome guy. He was, would hang out at the city gate and he would kind of ask people their problems and gripes with the king. And he's like, well, you know what? I, I'm, I'm on your side. I would do things differently. Basically starts a civil war um, where a whole lot of people die, including Absalom. He ends up dying in the midst of all of this. So that's David's next legacy that he's left. But all of this goes back to his, he didn't take action, right? That, that would have avoided that. Then Adonijah, um, he's the fourth son of David. Again, the Bible says he's a very handsome man. Um, he exalted himself, saying, I will be king. Now, David kind of decided Solomon's going to be king. And um, obviously the mom is Bathsheba. Uh, here's what happened in Scripture. It says in, um, this should be 1 Kings 1.6, his father had never at any time displeased him by asking, why have you done thus and so? That is a really telling verse in the middle of scripture about David. He had never at any time rebuked his son. Different translations say um, disciplined him, rebuked him. So now you've got, again, another example of a father who is not taking action when his son is beginning to exalt himself. He kind of got his entourage together and they would kind of follow him around and he decided on his own, I'm going to be king. Um, So while David was on his deathbed and with the support of Joab and Abiathar the priest and a few other people, Adonijah has himself declared king, even though David had chosen Solomon. So now you have this political chaos going on where everyone's like, oh my goodness, we have a new king. And they're hearing kind of the shouts of it. David's like, what's going on? And they find out. So they do their own um, anointing of Solomon. And now um, Adonijah's all freaking out. Here's the last thing that ended up happening. Solomon let him live uh, with a few conditions. But when David was old, some of you know this, he was old and he, he was, couldn't stay warm. And so they picked a young virgin to sleep with him, not for sexual relations, but just to try to keep him warm. That was their, their remedy. It's kind of like when you have the hypothermia, I guess, warm bodies type thing. Later on, here's what's interesting. Solomon allows Adonijah to, to live. But after David's death, Adonijah approaches Bathsheba and he asks for the hand of Abishag. That's the girl, the young virgin, to be his wife. So there's a few things that people say. A, he wanted her for himself because there's this young, beautiful virgin girl that now I want, even though I'm not king. But also, 
she was still kind of around, which she could have been counted as one of the concubines, and this could be seen as still a bid for the throne. Like, I'm going to begin kind of taking some of my father's harem, so to speak, and that infuriated um, Solomon, and he ordered Adonijah to be executed. So now you've got three sons all dying premature deaths, tragic deaths. That's David's legacy. And then you've got Solomon, who was really wise early on, right? And then later on, his heart gets turned away with uh, all of his wives, and he's then worshiping other gods. Crazy stuff, right? So I want to give you four lessons from this and uh, see how ultimately David's passivity um, was a big deal. So what I'm not saying today is if you're a passive dad, your kids are going to murder and die premature death. I'm not saying that. <clears throat> I'm just saying there, is, there are consequences naturally and God warns about these, of us not disciplining your sons. And, and Proverbs talks a lot, a lot about this that we'll see. So first lesson I want you to write down. Your example matters. Your example matters. <coughs> Excuse me. So <clears throat> I have got to remember, my children learn from watching and listening to me. Now, again, they've still got to make their own choices. David's sons made their own choices. But still, you go back and you think of what did they see in their father? So he's got at least eight wives, and he's got um, about ten concubines, which were there for his pleasure if he wanted them. So already, I know we freak out about like Bathsheba, like, oh my goodness, but we need to realize, listen, there was already a pattern in David's life of, I want a woman, I'm going to take a woman. And they're here for my pleasure. So think about this. I think of myself. As a teenage boy, watching your father have this 18 women at his disposal, and, and you're thinking about, wow. Wouldn't that be nice? Like, you could go for two weeks and have a different woman every night. Like, I mean, just all of these thoughts that David is setting as an example for his son. If you want a woman, then just go ahead and take that woman. Well, what did his firstborn son do? I want that woman. I'm going to take that woman. And so we've got to remember that our example matters. And again, in his own life, David had conspiracy and cover-up and murder, right? So these are just things that I've got to recognize that um, my kids watch me. That when I think of how I respond in anger or what I spend my time on all the time, how I handle conflict. Right now, I'm in the middle. I've been asked to come in and be a third party for this big family quarrel where the grown children are not getting along. And, I'm, and I hate conflict and I'm stepping in and I'm trying to be this mediator because they never learn how to handle conflict. And it is still going on. So how am I modeling for my kids humility, what it looks like to repent, um, what it really means to worship the Lord, the importance of God's word, the importance of prayer, I mentioned that last week about when I hear my kids pray lame prayers, I'm like, they learned that from me. Like, I want to show them something a little bit different. This is why I like the reminder in Proverbs 23, 26, my son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. So the beauty of this proverb is it's saying, I want a heart level relationship with you and I want you to be able to watch me. And this is the important thing. When you think of your example, I am not talking about perfection. I'm talking about a pattern, though, that, that Jesus took care of our perfection. So I'm not like I've got to be perfect in front of my kids. What they need to see is humility and brokenness when I do blow it, right? But this is where it, I do want to set an example of, Lord, I'm, I'm going to follow you with all my heart. And kids, I'm going to be fumbling and stumbling through this, and I'm going to be learning. But I need to be confessing and repenting. That needs to be the pattern of my life that you see in me, Okay? So it doesn't look like David really at least had that heart-level relationship with his kids. If you add up all those years with Absalom, 11 years from when Amnon raped Tamar until Absalom 
started the Civil War, that was 11 years of bitterness that, that David just didn't have the heart of his son. Um, so I've got to remember this. Children learn from watching us. David had at least eight wives and 10 concubines. So you got polygamy, adultery, conspiracy, and murder. His sons will do each of these. So you guys, it is not just what we say we believe. It's what our kids see we believe. Does that make sense? Like I've got to remember that, that more is caught than taught. And I want to make sure I'm remembering this. And I saw this as a youth pastor, that so many kids are not rejecting our theology. It's our hypocrisy. And again, they're not looking for perfection. Do you guys understand that? They, they know you're not perfect. Stop acting like you're perfect. They just want to know, is this Jesus thing real? Like, does it change you? Is it your passion? Is it your priority? Or is it just our hobby? Is this something we've added on to our family? Okay. This is why in Philippians 4, I love Paul reminding the people there, hey, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, you can practice those things. I'm hopefully going to be able to say to, my, say to my kids, hey, I have made a ton of mistakes. But in general, the pattern of my life, I want you to be able to say, follow this example. So here's the reminder, though, in all of this, I just got to bring it back to the reminder of the gospel and our identity. We are ultimately following Jesus' example. But ultimately, I want to remind my kids, guys, I, my, my eyes are fixed on Jesus. I'm following him. If you're following me, there's going to be some ups and downs but that is my goal, that ultimately Jesus is our example. So it's living in that tension of, I'm not perfect, but I want to set a great example for my kids. Part of that is going to be me telling them, I'm sorry. And I'll bet a lot of us in here can maybe count on one hand the times our fathers admitted they were wrong and asked for forgiveness. Maybe never, right? So Hebrews 12, related to this, is therefore since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, all the saints he just talked about in chapter 11, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. Some translations say, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. He's my example. And I'm gonna remind my kids, like I'm gonna, um, by God's grace, be um, trying to live um, by Jesus' example. So this is one thing I just wanna encourage you with. Maybe one resolve from this. By the grace of God, that he provides, I will be a man of integrity with as few blind spots as possible. That's one of these big things I need to be going, Lord, show me my blind spots. And I don't know what they are, right? Because they're blind spots. So God, open my eyes, show me things that I need and help me to be teachable and humble when I do see those things, okay? Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. That's the song that we sing here. Lord, I want my heart to be undivided, but I need you to teach me your way so I can walk, I can change my life. So, Here's what I want you to remember. Last thing. It's not my heart's perfection, but it's direction. Okay? Jesus took care of the perfection. So I'm free from that. There's there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But the direction of my heart, I want it to be following Jesus and connected to my kids. Connected to my wife. That's the direction of my heart. Okay? And so as a man of integrity, that just means, and my kind of little mantra that I have to remind myself is I want to flee from everything that erodes integrity. Like just little stuff. It's in the little choices that I make that erode my integrity. I'm probably not today going to walk out and cheat on my wife. But I'll lust after a girl if I'm not careful. I'll, I'll, I'll be insincere or tell a half-truth. Like there's a lot of stuff that Lord, I just want to, to be whole. That's what the word integrity means. Okay, in math we have the, uh, the word in integer, right? Which means what kind of number? A whole number. Okay, 
Some of you are like, oh yeah, that was way back then. But that's what, that's what that word means. It's where we get the word integrity. It's a, it's a wholeness. So Paul could say, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Number two, second thing, and this is the big lesson that we've already seen. You must discipline your kids. You must discipline your kids. Here is a painting or a picture of Absalom, unfortunately. He was a young, handsome guy, had really long hair. He has another story. He was fleeing in the midst of this battle during the Civil War. He gets his hair stuck in, a, in branches where he's, his, his, uh, and he's hanging there. What he was writing keeps on going. And now it's just target practice for um, David's general. But this is where discipline is so crucial. And I'm not talking about doing anything out of anger. Um, being mad is not discipline. Um, scolding your kids, yelling at them, that's not discipline. Okay, so many times there's a difference. I've got to remember between discipline and punishment. I just want to punish them. But discipline is related to the word disciple, discipleship. I've got to think of discipline as discipleship. And the challenge is always what I feel like doing in this moment and what they really need are very different. And so I've got to be principled. I've got to, I've got to work on that. Um, we've got a podcast, I think, where me and Wes Butler talked about discipline. Um, but here's a few proverbs to remind us of this. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent. Some versions say careful to discipline him. That means I've got to be intentional. I've got to be careful. I've got to check my own spirit. I've had to send my kids away while I get myself under control because I am furious right now. Um, Proverbs 18.5, it is not good to be partial to the wicked or to deprive the righteous of judgment. That's what David did, that he did not fulfill the the righteous judgment that, that he should have. Proverbs 19.18, discipline your son, for there is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. So in other words, there's a reminder that if my child is undisciplined, that could lead to him making really stupid choices that could end up him dying, okay? Discipline your son and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. And it might be really hard in the moment, but it is worth it in the end. Versus when you don't discipline and then you got to deal with crazy behavior out in public where you're embarrassed and you end up just being angry, like all of those things. So I want to discipline my child in a godly, calm, but intentional way. And then here's a command to us. And we can't get around commands, you guys. Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. What did David do with Absalom? Provoked him to anger. Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And that word discipline can also be translated as training. So again, it's not just you're in trouble, here's your consequences. I'm, I'm training you the way God disciplines us and trains us, okay? So with Absalom, here's what we see. Uh, and all of his sons, David refused to deal with his son's sins. He got angry but took no action. <clears throat> and there's plenty of times, you guys, where my kid's behavior will make me so angry. Like, I cannot believe you just did that. I, I was so naive before I had kids. I thought we were gonna have such a close, great relationship that when they do wrong things, just them knowing I displease my dad, like that's going to break them. And I'm like, nope, like defiance in my face. Like that is naive about the nature of children and the folly that's bound up in their heart, right? But I've got to make sure that I'm not just angry, but not actually doing the right thing. So David got angry, like, yeah, you should be angry about that. But now what, David? What are you going to do? So it's not just getting angry, yelling, um, my kids know I'm mad at them. It's going to be principled. I'm going to resolve this, and then I want to reconcile, which we'll get to in a minute. So David suffered the cost of not confronting his sons. So think about this. What might initial justice for Tamar have avoided? So he, he's got a son. 
who, who did something horrific, but if David acted and took action there, then Absalom's heart, right, isn't hardened. He's not trying to usurp the throne. Adonijah, his younger brother, tries to do the exact same thing. Maybe he would have been like, that's a crazy idea. Why would everyone do that? But he saw, it looked like Absalom was going to get away with it. So you, you roll all those things back and just go, what if he had acted in the beginning there? Okay. Here's a reminder for all of us. <clears throat> God disciplines those he loves. I have got to remember that if, when I do it correctly, I am doing this because I love my child, because I really want what's best for them. God disciplines us because he loves us and wants what is best for us, okay? Um, and again, I want to be humble and broken and honest in front of my own kids when I blow it and never blame shift. Or like if you hadn't done that, I wouldn't have got mad, like all those lame excuses. And I, I need to own what I, what, I, what I need to own. But in the same time, I need to lovingly discipline them. So Hebrews 12 moves on and says, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. And then talking about our fathers, it says, for they discipline us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. That's got to be my goal is not just punishment consequences. It's I really want you to, to live a righteous life. I want you to share in God's holiness. And coaching my kids when they're confessing and needing to apologize and stuff like, okay, but vertical relationship first. Like, have you talked to the Lord about this? Have we made that right first? Instead of just all these horizontal, sorry, 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 sorry. Like, this is between you and the Lord. I want their heart to be soft um, that way. Um, for the moment, all discipline seems painful. For you and the kids, it is no fun. Me coming home from a big day at work and thinking, like, I can't wait to get home and hang out with my kids and walking in the door, my mom says, I'm sorry, my wife, their mom, sometimes my mom too. My wife says, hey, uh, Christopher's waiting for you in the bedroom. You need to go deal with him. I hate that. And now it's like the whole evening is like, oh, my goodness. And so I'm tempted at that moment to be really light in the discipline. Like, let's not ruin the evening. Like, can you just promise? Will you promise me you won't? Like, that's not going to work. Okay, there needs to be consequences, and then there needs to be reconciliation. And I'll tell you guys, it, my daughters know this. I was not very uh, tough on them with discipline. Like, I had three boys, and that was easy to discipline them. And then I had a daughter, and it was like, oh, my goodness. I just would go back there, and I'm like, all right, do you promise you'll never? Like, I'm, like, negotiating with her, and I'm walking out, and my wife's like, uh, she's not crying. And I'm like, we had a good talk. It's like, no, I need to discipline all of my kids, sons and daughters. So here's a reminder, by the grace of God, by the grace God provides, I will view discipline as discipleship. Guys, we've got to view it that way. It's not a bad thing. God disciplines us because he loves us. He's treating you like, a chi- like, like one of his children, okay? Here's the second one, and this is really important. I need to take rebellion seriously. That it might be cute when they're little and, and saying no and stuff like that, and then parents are like, no, 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 don't do that, uh-uh. And we're kind of making it like a little game, like it's not that big a deal. Like it is not cute 10 years later when they're 13, okay? So I want to take that seriously. And again, of course, my kids are not going to be happy with me when I discipline them, right? If my goal is I just always want my kids to be happy with me, I'm not going to do the right thing. So, of course, they're not going to like it. It's no fun. Um, and I remind my kids, like, you understand, I don't, I don't enjoy doing this. But this is what um, I've got to do. Being a father is not a popularity contest, okay? Like, do you think I'm great or you happy with me? And so my, my prayer is that may God grant all of us the grace to discipline our children in, in, in proper ways with the, the right amount of firmness and love. But um, 
The last one. Remember that an undisciplined and unrestrained child becomes an undisciplined and unrestrained adult. Like, I, I just got to think of the long game. Down the road, if they never experience consequences for bad choices, rebellious choices, sinful choices, what is that teaching them? That is not setting them up for the real world or the real way that God interacts with his children. Like, there are consequences that I want them to uh, recognize that um, this is actually helping them and because I love them. Number three, always pursue reconciliation. Uh, I just picked, <laughs> picked this picture because it says that Absalom was a good-looking guy. So I just picked a guy that looks kind of good but kind of angry. Um, I don't know if this is what he looked like. Um, here's a few things that I need to remember about this. Um, David did not pursue reconciliation from his end when he could have and when I think he should have. That he was the one who, who kept the, the distance, literally the distance between him and his sons and didn't pursue that. And I think that's a big part of the bitterness that built up in Absalom uh, of how his father, I guess I failed, I guess dad will never love me. I guess I'm just banished. So here's what it says in a few different ways. It says, and the king said, let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house. Did not come into the king's presence. Then, so Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Finally, Joab comes to the king. And Joab is this mixed bag of good and bad. Joab finally says to him, hey, you need to, you need to reconcile. And so he, he says, okay. So he came to the king and bowed himself and his face to the ground uh, before the king. And the king kissed Absalom. So he's like, okay, now I guess we're fine. But this is the problem. All the bitterness had already set in. All the attitudes towards his dad, no matter what it looked like on the outside, Absalom was bitter on the inside and had already plotted that, that I'm not going to put up with this anymore. I'm going to take matters into my own hands. So here's a few reminders about this. And again, that's the domino effect you see from him not initially taking um, action. I need to remember this. Our kids are going to do dumb and sinful things. <laughs> I've just got to remember that. Often blatantly. Like, they knew exactly that that was wrong, and they did it, or just dumb things. So I've got to already get this out of my mind that they're going to be perfect, okay? Even my daughters. But this is important. I need to be quick to deal with their sin. That was our second point, right? And equally quick to forgive and restore. If not, they'll see us as harsh disciplinarians, not loving fathers. Some of you back in the fall, we talked about this, finishing this sentence. My dad was great, but... Yeah, my dad was a great dad, but how would you finish that sentence? How do you want your kids to finish that sentence? But man, when he lost it, when he got mad, mm, you don't want to be around. Or, I mean, he never tried to, I always had to reconcile with him or what. Like, I think of my legacy that I had from my dad, that, that it, whenever I got disciplined, it always ended in this, like, I don't know, are we good now? Are you still mad at me? I still felt like I was still in trouble. And so me realizing as a dad, I don't know how to end discipline sessions, I want to make sure that we're good. Like, you understand, I love you, and I am not still mad at you. There's still, maybe there going to be consequences that you're going to have to deal with, but I am not still mad at you. And having to end that way, and that's the way even our, our repentance before the Lord has got to be not just ending with, I'm really, really sorry, but ending in an opportunity to rejoice in the gospel, knowing that I, I'm just amazed that God has still res- responds me, to me as his son, not just a harsh judge. Refusing to forgive or seek restoration will exasperate them. And we're warned twice in the New Testament. Fathers, don't embitter or exasperate your kids. And so I've got to make sure that I am 
making sure they know we're good. And that's, I think, the question mark in Absalom's mind all those years was, am I good with my dad? I don't know. Like, he let me come back, but we're not really, like, I don't know. And so David didn't seek reconciliation. <coughs> and this is why Colossians 3 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Okay? So under this heading, we've got to make sure that we're pursuing reconciliation. And I mean that I'm the one reaching out to make it right instead of waiting for them. And again, it could be like they totally blew it. But I want to be the one that I'm reconciling. The way that we treat them is the way that they'll understand God as Father. Some of you struggle with this to, under, to think of God when you blow it. Like, how does God feel about me now? Your feelings about God are because of how your dad treated you. That you think like, I mean, he's still mad. He's probably now I've got to earn. I've got to prove. I've got to have penance. Like all of these things. And that's your view of God. So I need to pursue restoration. Okay? That I want to be the one that goes to them. That comes in and maybe has to say, hey. I lost my temper, or I want to make sure you know I still love you and affirm for them. Even if you've, you've in your mind made things fine and you're acting fine, make sure they hear from you. You know that I love you, okay? If we've been forgiven much, why would we withhold forgiveness when they disappoint us? And I've had some big disappointments with my kids, my grown kids. Like, I, I can't believe you did that. That was really disappointing, embarrassing. I, you knew it was wrong, all those things. But I've got to recognize, man, the Lord has forgiven me all of my sins. Like, I've got to make sure that's where scripture says, forgive as the Lord forgave you. So here's the reminder. I want you to, to keep this in mind. God took the initiative to reconcile with us. He didn't have to. I'm the one who blew it. I'm the one. We're the ones who separated ourselves from God. But what did he do? He took the initiative to come to seek and to save the lost. We love because he what? First loved us. So if I want to be modeling for my kids how God treats us, I'm the one pursuing reconciliation. And again, it doesn't mean I'm ignoring sin. It doesn't mean I gloss it over, we don't address it. It just means I want to make sure that I am actively working towards reconciliation with my kids. 2 Corinthians 5 talks about the gospel can be called, summed up in the word reconciliation. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is... In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Guys, I have got to always remember, the first place I'm an ambassador is in my home. I'm an ambassador for Christ, reminding them of the ministry of reconciliation and modeling for them the gospel. Like, And again, I'm gonna do this imperfectly all the time. But I need to understand, I am modeling for them. Even when Katie and I, we, we realized this years ago, when we reconcile after a fight, okay, which my wife doesn't like calling it a fight, so I call it intense fellowship. Um, when we've had that, um, I need to remember what I'm modeling for my kids, again, is the gospel. It's, I'm being reconciled. That's what the gospel is all about. I was God's enemy, and now because of Jesus, I'm reconciled. And so with my children, I get to, this is an opportunity. God, help us to remember this. I just forget it. This is an opportunity to rejoice in the gospel with our kids. And guys, I do not feel like that at all in the heat of the moment. So I'm just like, Lord, help me remember what really matters, the truth of the gospel and how you treated me. Number four, last point. Remember that God redeems broken fathers and families. I don't want us to walk away and think, David, what a failure. Don't ever look at his example. Nope, this is the beauty of 
the gospel. That God redeems. That means he takes all of our junk and he ends up changing it, transforming it, and using it for beautiful purposes. Whether that's your own testimony or your own mistakes or just your failings and stuff, God is all in the business of taking just dumb things we've done, sinful things we've done, and still using them for um, his purposes. So you think of Matthew chapter 1, okay? This big genealogy of Jesus and all the people, all the failings and, and stigma of these people that are mentioned. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Abraham made some mistakes, didn't always have faith. Took another wife, led to a lot of problems. Isaac, the father of Jacob, who lied to his father um, multiple times, and other people. Um, Jacob, the father of Judah, right? Jesus of the line of tribe. If you look at Judah early on, um, terrible brother towards Joseph. Slept with a prostitute, like all of this stuff. That's here in the line of the Messiah. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. That was his daughter-in-law that he slept with, dressed up as a prostitute. <clears throat> and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, the prostitute. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, who's a Midianite uh, from the land, I'm sorry, from Moabite, from Moab, um, really godless country. And Obed, the father of Jesse, Jesse, the father of David, who made all these mistakes. David, the father of Solomon, who's the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba. That's the big stigma of sin. Like all of the Messiah's genealogy is filled with broken people. So I've got to remember this, that God redeems, restores, and uses broken fathers and broken families. Okay? You you talk about dysfunction. Look at Joseph's family, all his brothers. So much dysfunction. But out of that comes the, the Messiah, right? So this is why in 1 Corinthians One, it says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful, of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world. That's us to shame the strong, foolish and weak. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. It's all so I can't say, guys, look what I did. And it's great. So no one can boast before God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. That's your identity all through the scriptures. Who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. God is redeeming all of our stories. Even the mistakes I'm going to make today. God's redeeming those things. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Or I can just go, all I can say, God is good. God's amazing. God is gracious. I'm just going to boast in him. If my kids turn out good, I need to not think like, well, look what I did as a father. If they turn out bad, I need to not go like, I guess I failed. Like, my identity is in Christ, and he's redeeming all of my mistakes. 2 Corinthians 4, 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay, fragile, unbeautiful, unadorned, to show that the surpassing power, that Greek word's where you get the word dynamite, the, the, the explosive, amazing power of God belongs to him and not to us. So it's not me. And I've got to constantly be de- deflecting glory and comments and, and, and praise and pointing it back to him, okay? So here's a reminder here, you guys. Your past doesn't disqualify you or define you. <coughs> your past does not disqualify you for God's kingdom, for being a godly husband or father, for God using you, and it does not define you, okay? Satan knows your sin. He wants to name you by your sin, even though he knows your new name in Christ, God calls you by your new name, even though he knows your sin. Like, that's the beauty of it. There's no condemnation. So that's what should define you. So whether it's sexual sin, porn, failed marriage, bad parenting, all that stuff, 
God still can redeem them. So, but how do I respond when God rebukes me, when God opens my eyes and shows me things? That's the big difference. Am I a repenting and confessing person that I'm constantly going, Lord, help me restore, redeem. I blew it again. Still, uh, you love me. What I love about David, and I'll just tell you this, he was humble. When, when um, the prophet Nathan came to him and finally showed him how blind he'd become, he was humble. He humbled himself. He wrote it down in a psalm, Psalm 51, to show his repentance for the world to see. So I want to make sure that when God does show me those things, I respond. And then here's a reminder that David still did leave a great legacy. When he was dying, he calls in Solomon. He commanded Solomon, his son, saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong. Show yourself a man. Keep the charge of the Lord your God. Walking in his ways, like all your choices that you're making. And keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies. As is written in the law of Moses. That you may prosper in all you do and wherever you turn. At the end, David still was telling his son, that's the way you need to go. I want to make sure that I'm, I'm leaving you that legacy. Okay? And then here's the great reminder from Acts 13. For David... After he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers. God had a purpose for David, even all his mistakes that he fulfilled and he served, and then his time was up. All of you, it will be said of this in God's records, that after you serve the purpose of God in your generation, you're done. God's going to call you home. So in the meantime, i got a race to run, and I want to do this with humility and brokenness before the Lord and think about the legacy that I'm leaving. Um... David wasn't a perfect father, but he was still a man after God's own heart. And he, he did love his kids, but I want to learn from those mistakes so that I don't repeat them, right? Okay. Last thing I want to just touch on before we break into our, our small groups, um, two words, attentiveness and attunement. Um, when I think of David, it does not sound like he really knew his kids very well. He didn't have um, their heart. And again, he's running, a, he's running a nation, you know, being king. There's a lot of stuff, I'm sure. But it just sounds like, seems like, he didn't have much of a relationship with his kids. He wasn't very attentive to where they were. And my wife introduced me to this word attunement recently. It just means literally, um, well, so attentive means to pay close attention to something. Attune means to bring into harmony, to make aware or responsive. And um, it just seems like David was clueless as to where his kids were emotionally and mentally that he wasn't attentive or attuned to uh, what was going on there. And um, I saw this when I was a youth pastor, that I was amazed so many times of parents who just were out of touch with where their kids were. Who I was talking to a dad one time, and I was like, well, you know, I mean, your daughter's boyfriend. And the dad was like, wait, wait, who, who's my daughter dating? Like, he, he literally didn't know who his daughter was dating. And so I was like, yeah, let me tell you, and you need to have a conversation. But just, I need to make sure that I'm in tune with my kids. So... Um, scripture says in 1 Peter 3, 7, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. I've just got to think this through. Like, what does it look like or mean for me to live in an understanding way with my wife? That, it, that involves attention and attunement, that I'm paying attention to how she's feeling, to what's going on, of how my kids are behaving and how that affects her. So here's the last bit of advice to you guys. When you talk to your wife or get home and you're calling her on the phone or when you're on your way home, you need to ask yourself, so how's she doing? How can I help? I need to come in with the attitude, she's had a harder day than I have. That's got to be my mentality. Otherwise, I'm entitled, and I think I should be treated a certain way. So how's my wife doing? Asking her, how are the kids doing? Um, what does she have to say about the kids? What is she seeing that I'm not? And I, it is all pride, you guys, in me that doesn't want to listen when my wife is telling me what my kids are struggling with, because so many times I don't see it. But she's spending way more time with them than me. And I need to listen 
put my pride aside and listen to my wife when she says, hey, this is where we're really, we really need to work on this. You need to talk to them about this or we need to work on this. And I need to listen when my wife shares that. And then between me and my kids, how are their hearts doing? Did they feel like I'm approachable or too busy? Am I actually listening? Is there any bitterness that's building up inside of them? And it, it might not be fun, but to ask your kids as they get older, they'll probably handle it better. But like, is there anything that I've done that you're still you know, upset about or, or that might be building up anger or bitterness? I just want to make sure that we're, that we're, that we're good. Um, and I, I just actually want to listen, whether it's big things or little things about what's going on in their world. Um, whether it's like my daughter Callie is all big about like, that I know what her favorite color is. Currently, that's the problem. It changes all the time. But I want to listen when she tells me things and uh, make sure my kids feel that I'm, I have their heart. So by the grace that God provides on this last one, I will be attentive and attuned to my wife and my children. Um, my prayer has got to be, Lord, turn my heart to the ministry of my children. God, I want to see this as this is my primary ministry, that I'm ministering to them. And... Um, and then it's all going to be by God's grace. But Malachi 4, 6, the Old Testament ends with God saying, I will turn the hearts of fathers towards their children and the, the children towards their fathers. And so um, I want to make sure that I'm, I'm prioritizing that. Okay, let me pray for us. And then we're going to have time in your groups to discuss. Lord, thank you for your word. And we thank you for the fact that um, we get to see good and bad examples in many people's lives. We thank you for David and the amazing uh, heart for worship and your name and fame that we see in him. But Lord, we also thank you for the example that you, um, in your wisdom, chose to be uh, recorded for us to learn so we could live instead of live and learn. And so God, I pray that we would be men who take our example seriously that we would discipline our kids, God, that we would reconcile with our kids. And um, Lord, just in the end, that we would remember that you redeem our brokenness, our mistakes, and that there is no one that you can't use. And so God, we pray that we'd be humble and teachable and ask your, your, your blessing on our discussion time together. Um, we ask this in Jesus' name and by his power. Amen.